Very good evening to you. Uh, welcome uh, to the LSE, those of you who are not normally here, and as I've said to others before who are here, you of course are also welcome if you're here every day, so good to see everybody. Uh, I'm Tony Travers, I'm chairing this evening, I'm the Interim Dean of the School's New uh, Public Policy at the LSE, which is going to start formally in September. I mean, most of what we're doing in the School of Public Policy is already happening, but uh, many new, better, and even better things will be uh, kicked off once we formally become the SPP with a permanent dean uh, in the autumn. So keep uh, your eyes and ears open for that. Um, the reason for this evening's event is to hear a public lecture from Sir Nick Clegg. Uh, it's called Flying the Flag for Openness, Why Liberalism Still Matters. And the hashtag you can see there is hashtag LSE Clegg. I should add that uh, the event this evening is by way of um, inaugurating uh, Nick's uh, presence at the LSE as a professor in practice in the School of Public Policy, uh, which is great for him and great for us, or I should say great for us, and I hope it's great for him. Uh, <laughs> not to prejudge that uh, from your point of view yet. Now, uh, just uh, a couple of words of, of uh, biography for Nick before he starts. And what we'll then do is uh, he'll speak for half an hour, 40 minutes, uh, he and I will then have a bit of a conversation over there, and then we'll open it up to the audience, uh, to all of you, as many of you who wish to speak, until half past seven. So, uh, a few words of biography. Um, Nick Clegg, Sir Nick Clegg, served as Deputy Prime Minister in Britain's first post-war coalition government from 2010 to 2015. He was leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2007 to 2015 and, of course, was the Member of Parliament for Sheffield Hallam uh, for 12 years. Prior to his entry in British politics, uh, he served as a leading member of the European Parliament. I've just spent a happy few minutes listening to uh, he and Simon Hicks trading European modern history together, uh, which is always a pleasure. Um, and as an international trade negotiator, trade negotiator in the European Commission dealing with the accession of China and Russia into the WTO. So obviously if all else fails, there's another potential job for you with the UK government there as the years roll on. Um, Nick is one of the highest, uh, most high-profile pro-European voices in British politics. And I must stress at this point the LSE has no view on these matters. We've had, we've had speakers. wasn't an attempt at humour, but thank you. <laughs> thank you again. We can go on like this all evening. Um, uh, we've had events on this stage which put a very different view about Brexit. But this evening we're going to hear, as I say, from one of the most high-profile pro-European voices in British politics who's played an influential role in the debate leading up to and since the EU referendum in June 2016. Uh, and indeed has published a book entitled How to Stop Brexit and How to Make Britain Great Again. That was published in October last year. It's hard to think of a day more piled high with meaning than today, given what's going on a mile and a quarter away down at Westminster, which I haven't had a chance to look at, so you'll all know more about that than me. But anyway, I'm sure Nick knows about it. So, ladies and gentlemen, Sir Nick Clegg. <laughs>
Paul, thank you very much, uh, Tony, for that generous introduction. And it's a real, real delight and honour for me to be uh, here with you um, at this wonderful institution. And I'm delighted to be giving this my first, and I guess therefore last, inaugural lecture um, <laughs> as a visiting professor in practice at, uh, at the uh, School of Public Policy. And I'm really, really thrilled to be doing so and really look forward to playing a small part in the sort of fabric of this remarkable, remarkable institution. And um, uh, having heard Tony's claim that the LSE is entirely neutral on the issue of Brexit, uh, the subject of my lecture is not uh, actually about Brexit. Uh, the purpose of this, my inaugural lecture, is instead to examine why the liberalism that uh, I and many people of my generation have taken for granted is now a political philosophy in retreat and to provide some suggestions about how liberalism should renew and reform itself. Uh, but let me be clear before I go on any further. This is not, you'll be relieved to hear, a party political speech. And I won't be taking you on a historical tour of the trials and tribulations, although there are many of both, um, of the Liberal Democrats or of the old Liberal Party. Instead, I want to talk about liberalism with a small L. Liberalism as the political philosophy that has dominated the political mainstream in this country since the Second World War and arguably well before then too. Because the values and ideas of the liberal tradition, free markets, human rights, internationalism, diversity, the rule of law, these are not the exclusive property of any one political party. They are part of the warp and weft of our country. And they are now values and ideas which are being beaten back everywhere by resurgent nationalism, widespread economic and social discontent, protectionism, the agonies of Brexit, and the strongman politics of Trump, Putin, Erdogan, Orban, and Salvini. I am part of a generation, I'm 51, for whom the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the triumph of market economics were the defining forces which shaped our worldview. As the paralyzing ideological standoff between Soviet communism and Western capitalism gave way to a reunited Europe and the hegemonic might of the United States of America, the purpose of politics seemed relatively simple, spreading prosperity and opportunity to as many of our fellow citizens as possible by harnessing the dynamism of market economics. Entrenching liberal norms in society from gay rights to gender equality and shaping globalization through supranational organizations, notably the European Union, and multilateral institutions affecting everything from climate change to global trade. Given the trepidation and uncertainty which afflicts the world today, it's easy to forget the unbridled optimism which prevailed in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. The sense that international cooperation would replace Cold War rivalry, <coughs> that Europe would thrive as a continent whole and reborn, 
that growth would heal the deep wounds left by an economically and socially dysfunctional Soviet order, and that virulent nationalism would be consigned to the history books. All these were palpable and widespread sentiments at the time. Little did we know, of course, back then, that three major forces would shape our world in ways which no one foresaw then. First, the catastrophic collapse of the Western financial system in 2008. Second, the spectacular rise in economic and political power of the East, notably China. And third, the mass movement of people, both as refugees and as economic migrants, on a significant and sustained scale, especially, but not only, into and across Europe. There are, of course, many other powerful forces which have impacted the modern world order. Climate change, the rise of new information technologies, religious and ethnic extremism. But I would argue that they are of, that they are of a different order and do not have quite the same existential impact on a liberal philosophy which has prevailed in one shape or another since the mid-19th century in Britain. Because the 2008 crash has led to a belief in some quarters that liberalism itself is responsible for untrammeled and dangerously under-regulated markets, which can inflict, imme inflict immense damage to society when they spin out of control, as they did in the over-leveraged banking system. The rise of an economically potent and, until now at least, broadly stable form of authoritarian one-party state in China has also given rise to a critique of liberal democracy. Our democratic traditions have proved to be far more fragile than we normally dare to admit. If you were sitting in Beijing today, witnessing the odd mix of fury and self-harm which has characterized both Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump, you'd be forgiving, forgiven for thinking that you were right not to take up the model of Western democracy for your own people. And the reaction of millions of voters who have consistently expressed support in election after election for politicians espousing hostility to mass migration, most recently in the election of an avowedly anti-immigrant populist government in Italy, and the victory in Slovenia of the anti-immigrant Slovenian Democratic Party last week, this has given rise to a critique of liberal attitudes towards immigration too. This line of attack has been coupled with a more subtle caricature of liberalism rooted in cultural anthropology, perhaps best expressed in the writings of David Goodhart and Jonathan Haidt. According to their charge sheet, liberals are part of a wealthy, urban, out-of-touch elite which has lost its cultural and moral connection to society at large. Liberals claim to act in the national interest, uh, but their actions serve only to entrench their own privilege. They care excessively uh, for the rights of unpopular minorities, immigrants, criminals, and care nothing for the cultural values of the majority. They are stateless citizens of nowhere. They equate patriotism with racism. They have foisted mass migration on the country with a careless disregard for national and local identity. And in doing all of this, they have unwittingly 
triggered authoritarian sentiments in the hearts of people who are not racist, but do care deeply about tribe and nation. So liberalism today stands accused on multiple fronts for failing to stop the financial crisis, for failing to maintain the vitality of Western liberal democracy in the face of authoritarian rivals, and for failing to anticipate the rejection by voters of an open immigration system. There is some truth to some of these criticisms. It is undoubtedly the case, for instance, that the liberal support for immigration was slow to recognise the change in public mood. It is equally true that a faith in the turbocharged benefits of global finance, headquartered just down the road in the City of London, meant that regulators and politicians were slow to identify the build-up of unsustainable risks in the banking system. And it is most certainly true that there has been a woeful failure on the part of those who treasure our liberal democratic institutions to reform and refresh them. In Britain, the lack of a codified constitution, unbalanced electoral arrangements, opaque party funding rules, and top-down executive-led centralisation have rendered the political system dangerously vulnerable to the influence of unaccountable vested interests. But much of the caricature and criticism of liberalism is also lazy and misleading. Arguably, for instance, it was a dearth, not surfeit, of liberalism which allowed, allowed the over-leveraged banking system to collapse under the weight of its excessive risk-taking. Liberalism abhors concentrations of power, especially unaccountable concentrations of power. In An Intelligent Person's Guide to Liberalism, Conrad Rus Russell set out one of the clearest contemporary explanations of an ancient liberal faith in openness and the dispersal of power and an abhorrence of monopoly and of collusion between unaccountable vested interests. So it was no surprise that in the run-up to the 2008 crisis that the only voices repeatedly expressing alarm in the House of Commons about what was going on in the financial system should have been from liberal MPs and the breeziest assertions that all was well came from a Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, who would probably hate to be labelled as a liberal in any way. It is equally silly to caricature liberalism as somehow alien to British patriotism. Liberalism is, in truth, a quintessentially British tradition. In the 19th century, the writings of J.S. Mill, most famously in on, Lib in on Liberty, defended the right to freedom of speech, made the case for the sanctity of the individual, and called for equality between the sexes. Noble liberal traditions then, proud British values today. In the 20th century, it was the work of a liberal, John Maynard Keynes, and his belief in, belief in a corrective approach to markets that helped to shape an approach to economics which looks as resonant in 2018 as it was considered revolutionary in 1936. Keynes also led the British delegation to the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference, helping to shape the post-war financial system, including the creation of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Proudly liberal thinking then, global British achievements today. 
and in Parliament, from Gladstone's championing of free trade, emphasis on fiscal responsibility, and championing of local government against parliamentary centralism, to the social liberalism of David Lloyd George, who introduced reforms such as the old age pension and national insurance, it is the liberal values of the 19th (coughs) and the early 20th centuries which shaped the nation we are today. Most influential of all, perhaps, was the man who advised Lloyd George, William Beveridge. As Britain began the slow recovery from the ravages of the Second World War, Beveridge recommended the creation of the National Health Service in 1948 and a national system of benefits to provide the population with security from cradle to the grave. When asked what makes us proudest to be British, the NHS, more often than not, is the answer. Revolutionary liberal ideas then, proud British institutions today. It seems a different world now. But the opening ceremony of the London Olympics in the summer of 2012 was a clear demonstration that a progressive patriotism is possible. (coughs) It was an unashamedly contemporary and positive patriotism and one in which liberals could bask as much as anyone else. Whilst it is true that that there has always been a slightly sniffy attitude towards flag and country, among parts of the British bien-pensant intelligentsia, George Orwell famously complained that British intellectuals believe it is a duty to snigger at every English institution from horse racing to suet puddings. It is ludicrous to suggest that liberals in general do not feel the powerful pull of belonging that is a core part of the human condition. A liberal belief in the primacy of the rights and privacy of the individual can stand at variance with the fervour of the crowd. And like most liberals, I abhor the intolerance of most nationalisms. But that is not the same as saying that liberals do not understand patriotism. The allegation that liberalism is out of step with modern public sentiment is also not as well-founded as often claimed. Extensive polling conducted by Global Future shows that the internet generation of under 45s overwhelmingly believe multiculturalism and immigration have made Britain a better place. They believe that overseas aid and the European Union are forces for good, that socially liberal policies on equality, feminism, human rights are good for the country. And in an age where it can seem that the world is lurching towards nativism, It is heartening, too, to see that the majority of young people describe themselves as internationalist in outlook. In other words, as the old divides of left versus right, state versus market, workers versus bosses, public versus private, give way to a more fluid set of distinctions determined by levels of education and age, it is clear that many younger voters are loosely associated with what would would be called liberal values. Arguably, liberalism is not a relic, relic of the past, but a harbinger of things to come. So liberals should not feel too browbeaten by the numerous criticisms heaped upon them. There is much to be proud of in the liberal tradition and good reason to believe that liberalism will continue to get a good hearing 
especially from younger voters in the future. Indeed, I believe that there is an unhealthy tendency these days for liberal, liberals to apologise for their supposedly metropolitan reflexes. Liberalism should get off its knees. But defiance is not the same as complacency. A political tradition which is as beleaguered in the ballot box as liberalism has little cause to rest on its laurels, however historically distinguished those laurels might be. There are, in my view, two areas where liberals need to rethink their traditional stance, on the role of the state and on immigration. There have always been tensions in the liberal tradition between traditional Gladstonian or Manchester liberals who share a deep-seated scepticism about the powers of the state and new or social liberals who have espoused state activism since the early part of the 20th century to tackle the scourges of ill health, poverty and deprivation. Which tradition in liberal thought predominates has tended to depend on circumstance. Vigilance about the overweening reach of state power has tended to predominate in times of plenty or when Britain was secure in its hegemonic status in the 19th century. When economic growth at home is accompanied by unrivaled power abroad, it is easier to believe that the state should not unduly interfere. By contrast, at times of economic dislocation or at times of conflict and war, the indispensable clout of the state is naturally called upon. As the growing economic and social tensions of the late 19th century accumulated, subsumed a few years later in the bloodshed of the First World War, Herbert Louis Samuel, who later became leader of the Liberal Party, called upon more state activism to improve the surroundings of working-class life, to render the resources of education equally available for the poor and the rich, to alleviate the miseries of unemployment and the destitution of the old, to reform the system of land tenure, to take under public <coughs> control any industry which it is found can be managed in that way with greater advantage to the community, and to provide a fair standard of comfort for all who are in state employ. Those words are strikingly similar to Beveridge's five giants of squalor, ignorance, want, idleness and disease, which he too believed, half a century later, could only be addressed through greater state activism. The mood amongst liberals towards state activism has continued to oscillate. When I first joined the House of Commons as a Member of Parliament in 2005, the country had just experienced a sharp increase in political centralisation, public spending and encroachments on privacy and civil liberties under new Labour administrations since 1997. Much though new Labour's approach, at least as far as public spending was concerned, was an understandable response to the lean years of the Thatcher and major administrations, by the time I became an MP, there was a palpable feeling across parties, including <coughs> significant parts of the Labour Party, that the pendulum had swung too much towards big government. I got an early taste of the continued intensity of the debate around the role of the state when I contributed an essay to the Orange Book in 2004, 
a collection of essays by various Liberal Democrat figures. It was premised on the assertion that under New Labour, Whitehall had become overbearing in seeking to direct the minutiae of public policy from the centre, and that political gimmickry was leading to wasteful and unproven public spending commitments. Shortly afterwards, the world as we knew it came to a shuddering halt when the financial crisis hit, an economic calamity the scale of which we have not seen since the oil shock in the early 1970s and arguably not since the depression of the 1930s. I remember shortly after becoming Deputy Prime Minister in 2010 being informed by an expressionless Treasury official that the full liabilities of the British banking system amounted to almost five times the size of the whole British economy. The blood drained from my face as I silently absorbed the enormity of that one fact, soon realising that my numerous schemes for new policies would have to take second place to the overriding task of diffusing this ticking financial time bomb. At the same time, millions of British working families suffered a squeeze on their take-home pay, which has lasted longer than at any time in the industrial era. Estimates suggest that real wages will not return to pre-2008 levels until 2025. Interestingly, while much of the argument between the political parties has swirled around the necessity or not of austerity, the differences are in truth smaller than sometimes claimed. The coalition government between 2010 and 2015, for instance, pursued a pace of deficit reduction which turned out to be slower than that set out by Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling in 2010. And even after the controversies of public spending reductions, the total level of state spending in the spring of 2015 stood at 41% of GDP, which was still three percentage points higher than the average under the previous 13 years of the Labour government. In other words, if liberalism is accused, as it often is, particularly from the left, of having imposed fiscal orthodoxy on the country in recent years, it is a stance shared across all major parties. But I believe that we are now at an inflection point. The current deficit has finally been cleared, and Britain's largest peacetime deficit has been brought down from 9.4% of GDP in 2010 to 1.9% last year. In the wake of the economic and social damage wreaked by the 2008 crisis, it is, uh, it is obvious that our country now faces major challenges. A social care system in crisis, a health system in desperate need of more resources, demoralised police forces, inadequate vocational and technical education, teacher shortages in schools, an eroding tax base, and one of the most dysfunctional and unjust housing markets in the Western world. My own views about the best policy prescriptions for each of these challenges would require a separate speech. But one thing is clear. None of these problems can now be solved without significant extra public money, and many of them will require aggressive policy interventions by government. It is, for instance, obvious to everyone 
but the most ardent advocates of the, geniuses, of the genius of markets, that the immense effort required to build the 300,000 new homes annually, which are estimated simply to be needed to bring supply and demand into balance, cannot be left to private housing developers enticed by a smattering of tax and planning incentives. A major publicly funded and publicly directed house building programme is now urgently required. In short, the state must be put to work. Then there is the fraught issue of immigration, especially immigration into and across the European Union. Just two years ago, footage of over a million migrants perilously, perilously crossing the Mediterranean as they fled conflict in Syria and Libya was beamed across the European Union. The images prompted many reactions, compassion, of course, but also intense fear. And as these poor people made their way from Greece, through the Balkans and into Western Europe, EU nations reacted in ways which would have shocked the founders of the European Union. Slovenia erected razor wire on its border with Croatia. Austria built a barrier on its border with Slovenia. Slovakia shut its borders with Hungary. Hungary closed its borders with Croatia. These dramatic <coughs> solutions went against the very liberal values which lie at the core, the core of what the EU was meant to be about. At first, there was a hope that public concern would subside as the deal struck between Turkey and the European Union to reduce the flow of refugees into the EU started to take effect. Yet public concern has only continued to rise as the dramatic elections in recent weeks in Italy and Slovenia bear out. With the benefit of hindsight, it is easy to see why millions of European voters should feel that their concerns were not being heard in Brussels. In a cluttered continent such as ours, it is possible to remove internal borders as long as you install effective external borders, or remove external borders and retain internal borders. What is not sustainable is to have no meaningful checks on either. Yet this is precisely what happened as much of the European Union committed itself to the internal borderless Schengen area without agreeing how to properly administer the EU's external borders. It is also unfair to ask southern European countries, notably Greece and Italy, who are experiencing a lengthy period of economic and social distress, to act as the continent's border force, reception centre and welfare provider for thousands upon thousands of desperate individuals making the perilous sea journey across the Mediterranean. I abhor the populist antics of Mr Salvini, the leader of the Lega in Italy, in refusing just yesterday to allow sick women and children and other refugees from disembarking in Italy. But it strikes me as equally obvious that Italian voters will continue to support him as long as the EU is perceived to be unwilling to provide meaningful support to frontier states. Meanwhile, the fraught issue of freedom of movement within the European Union continues to rumble on without any clear resolution in Britain. The headline assertion that voters want to stop 
freedom of movement altogether, masks a more complex picture. It is clear from polling data that people hold nuanced views about immigration. They are open to students and skilled migrants, welcome migrants who benefit the economy, but support controls on low-skilled immigration. The Brexit referendum also revealed a striking pattern in which many of the areas of the country where the Brexit vote and anti-immigration feeling was highest, immigration into the local area was low, and the areas where the Remain vote and positive sentiments towards immigration was highest, such as here in London, immigration into the local area was higher. Nonetheless, it is now, in my view, a political fact that restoring public faith in the open, rules-based values of European integration will not be possible without a major overhaul of Europe-wide immigration policy covering both the movement of people into the continent and within it too. Such an overhaul should have three key elements. Proper, well-resourced and policed external EU borders. Burden-sharing in the accommodation of refugees and asylum seekers and an emergency break by which member states can temporarily impose quantitative limits on intra-EU immigration where it is clear that exceptional levels of internal EU immigration <coughs> are occurring. David Cameron made much more progress towards achieving the latter point in his much maligned renegotiation with the EU than he or his critics acknowledged. While the focus of his package of reforms was to allow member states, crucially not just the United Kingdom, to impose restrictions on the access to in-work welfare benefits for EU citizens, it would not take a great deal of ingenuity to extend that mechanism to apply to temporary quantitative limits. I know from my conversations with leaders across the European Union that they expected and would have responded to demands from Theresa May for further reform to EU immigration. To their disbelief, that demand never came. Notwithstanding the formulaic repetition by EU leaders that the four freedoms, including freedom of movement, are sacrosanct, it is obvious, especially in the wake of the Italian elections and the tough measures taken in Germany, France and elsewhere against workers from Central and Eastern Europe, that there is now a critical mass of political support to revamp EU immigration policies as a whole. This is something that liberals should embrace, not shun, not in an attempt to beat the anti-immigration populists at their own game, that will never succeed, but to re-establish the basic social and political consent needed to sustain a sensible managed immigration system in Europe. Pascal Lamy, the former Director General of the World Trade Organization, has labelled Brexit as an exercise in de-globalisation, as difficult as taking an egg out of an omelette. The same can be said of Donald Trump's protectionism, Viktor Orban's Islamophobia and the sharp public turn across Europe against open immigration. They are all manifestations of unease with the pace and volatility of a global phenomenon, the increasing interdependence of nations and the cross-border movement of people, 
ideas, goods and services. The answer for liberals is not to turn their backs on globalization, but to manage, administer and tame those aspects which damage public consent, without which supranational governance is impossible in a democratic society. In conclusion, we live in anxious times. Populism is on the march. There are even fears, not least after the spectacular disarray of the G7 summit this weekend, that liberal multilateralism could unravel altogether. Meanwhile, as the West loses confidence in itself, China's next major export is likely to be an authoritarian but stable alternative form of governance. It is easy to be bleak about the future. Yet I don't believe this reading of what comes next is right. The strongest clue lies in the views of the next generation, and their values and aspirations are every bit as liberal as what has gone before. Crucially, research indicates that these attitudes are likely to persist as younger cohorts come of age, so we can expect liberal open attitudes to predominate in older age groups in future. Add to that the trend towards increasing urbanization. More than half of the world's population now lives in cities, and two-thirds will do so by 2050. And the implication is clear. There is a new mood afoot, and it's not for turning inwards. At the same time, a healthy democracy can't simply ignore the anxieties of citizens who are desperately unhappy with the status quo. That is why small-l liberals must now face up to the task of reforming liberalism to make it fit for the future. We need to redeploy the power of the state to address this country's deep structural problems and work out a new approach to the mass movement of people into and across our crowded European continent. Neither will be easy, and there are no guarantees of success. But both are necessary, if not sufficient, on their own to repair the fractures in public consent for a battered liberal worldview. Liberalism is not down and out by any means, but it will need to learn new tricks if it is to survive. Thank you for listening to me. <clears throat> Okay, well, uh, first, thank you for that uh, clear exposition of sort of a defense of liberalism and some clues as to where you think it needs to go. And so I'll just pick up on one thing, I mean, as ever, inevitably, you, you, I'll inevitably pick up on one thing you didn't really quite say, that you touched on it, which is that in addition to uh, the issues of the way the state functions, and uh, Europe's approach to migration. Another thing that was clearly demonstrated by recent events uh, is the fact that over a long period of economic change in Europe, in North America, there was a failure to accompany that with policy to help people who lost out of the deindustrialization. Uh, get 
into a position where they could compete with new jobs or new people in new industries that were uh, uh, appearing in other parts of the world. So, you know, Britain went through a lot, and the United States and other countries, a long period of deindustrialization, and some people have gained enormously out of that, and we know others and parts of the country have been left behind. And so I suppose the question is, what would the, in a sense, the new version, the new vision of liberalism, you did touch on it with the marks about uh, poor old uh, further education, but you know, what's to be done to help people in places like Blackpool or the North East or parts of Wales who voted uh, in the way they did in this country and people in rural parts of the United States and you mentioned Italy did in the way they did? sort of against an economic system which is not only against them personally but appears to be increasingly mon monopolistic in a way that no nation state is big enough to take on. So there's two issues about how big global capitalism yeah. works which doesn't kind of work in an obvious way for individuals and particularly for individuals whose jobs disappeared 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to disaggregate these things, and it's not straightforward to do so. There's a, implicit in your question, there's um, one trend, which is an obvious one, which is that as uh, more and more developing countries, particularly in Asia, yep. um, brought, if you like, on stream into the international labor market, millions of hardworking folk able to produce everything from widgets to plastic toys, from computer screens to cars, at a fraction of the price of Western workers, you just, just a basic fact of economic gravity, that unless you mm. return to you know, silos of protectionism, that has a profound effect on the labour market in the West. So there's a wage competition issue, particularly as uh, <clears throat> low-income uh, economies, thankfully, have become increasingly swept up into the global economic system. And then there's one which is a very different one, which is, are there trends in corporate global activity which somehow exacerbate um, exacerbate uh, that and, and well, um, exacerbate inequality, really, a massive. Well, but even, even there, you see, I mean, it, uh, um, I, you know, it is now basically an unchallenged assertion that after 2008, inequality shot up. It didn't. No, I'm not saying no, that. No, no, but yeah, it's very longer, term, very longer term than that. Much well, longer than that. Yeah. No, no. Well, we actually know, don't we? We know there was a very sharp increase in inequality in the 1980s, sure. and it's basically plateaued since then. It's starting to rise now again. Um, um, but actually, remarkably, in those crucial years in which I was involved in these kind of policy debates, after 2008, inequality was kept relatively um, stable for various reasons. And my own view, for what it's worth, but, but this is a slightly adjacent to your question, but hopefully relevant to it, is that the thing that is most crippling for people here in their hearts is this remorseless squeeze on their take-home pay. I mean, millions of people, particularly in the Anglo-American economies, in the wake of the 2008 crisis, found that they were working longer hours for the same pay or the same hours for less pay year after, for eight or nine long years through no fault of their own. Sure. These wretched bankers screwed up and the regulators and the politicians were asleep at the wheel. And that has quite rightly and understandably generated fury. I, token, I met countless voters when I was out and about um, in, in the run-up to the referendum just saying to hell with the status quo. You know, we're going to vote for Brexit. Anything's better than this. Anything's better than us having to, cons you know, sweat our guts out working for less, for less money through no fault of our own. By the way, interesting, there's a very important contrast between the way in which Anglo-American economies with more liberal labour markets 
managed to keep people in employment. So employment remained remarkably high, despite all the predictions from economists to the contrary after 2008. But that came at the cost of a remorseless squeeze on people's take-home pay. In European countries, you had something, or mainland European countries, you had something quite different. Um, unemployment shot up, particularly youth unemployment, to catastrophic levels in countries like Spain and elsewhere. But people who were in work protected their benefit. Anyway, look... But it, as you know, I mean, we've got, we've got high levels, and, you know, the unemployment figures are out today showing another growth, further yeah. growth in employment, further fall in unemployment. But we also have very low productivity. And the, and the people who suffer most from the low productivity are people who you rightly identify. Many of them will have voted for a change. And what I'm, I'm intrigued by is what the new liberalism well, will well, offer those people to improve their life chances. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here's the, here's the frustrating thing about this. We actually kind of roughly know what, need, what works. We know that uh, sustained infrastructure investment is essential in, in complex, crowded economies such as ours if you want to bind the country together. We know that reskilling, particularly with vocational and technical qualifications, is absolutely essential to provide um, folk with the um, opportunities to find new job opportunities as the labour market changes. Um, um, we know that you need to design the tax and welfare system in a way that particularly countries in Scandinavia have managed to, as, it, as it's called there in the jargon, flex security. In other words, that you have a relatively liberal and nimble labour market. In other words, hiring and firing is relatively easy, but the protection afforded when you are without work and the training provided when you are without work to find new employment is very sophisticated. We kind of know. I mean, there's oodles of stuff produced, no, no doubt, by great institutions like there's, this, which have shown over yep. years that that's the recipe. For one reason or another, which is the complicated question, is why, why do governments of all persuasions not crack this? Now, part of the problem, bluntly, is because none of these things are done quickly. None of them are magic wand solutions. None of them are the kind of things which shimmer and shine on a, on a, on a, on a, on a party manifesto. None of them look great on a party, you know, sort of leaflet. So what we constantly get in policymaking, particularly if you're reeling from the huge economic shock we got in 2008, is that, that gimmicks, short-term stuff, stuff which catches headlines, always take precedence over what are basically long-term reforms to the tax and spend -ish, uh, system, the labour market and our infrastructure. But do you think that, I mean, and I don't want to go back to the years you were in government, but just let me graze on it just gently. I mean, you'll be aware that, uh, you know, that the coalition uh, did not uh, radically improve or even protect uh, further education and skills funding, in fact, rather the opposite. Uh, schools were protected broadly, universities did relatively well, and yet the, the bits that helped the people who have been left behind was the least... Now, it's not unique to that government, I concede that. There's a general long-term problem, a disconnect between those who make policy and the educational opportunities of people who, you know, we're all agreeing, are the people who've been left behind by this radical change to the global economy. Yeah, so, you know, it's worth sometimes doing exercises, you know, where you can literally just have... You can have cards with... You know, defence has my Ministry of Defence has ten points. Defra has ten points. Uh, the education has ten points. Health has ten points. You know, and you've got to save for all of these cards eighty points. Where where does the act fall? I mean, that's literally how it kind of works. And you have to make choices. And we made choices. 
some of which I insisted on. So I insisted on complete protection of the baseline schools funding yep. for, I thought, very compelling reasons because, you know, the young kids in the school system should not suffer for the, for the kind of uh, the, the ills of their, their older generations. We protected, though even that, of course, remained controversial, the NHS. In other words, they got modest increases in funding but not as not galloping increases of funding, which it had been used to. Um, and crucially, on the, dare I say it, boy, do I know it, the sort of fraught issue of higher education and further education, uh, one of the reasons we embarked upon this, you know, obviously in my case, politically fatal reform of uh, uh, tuition fees and so on, was precisely to try and soften the blow of further education. So if you speak to Vince Cable and David Willits, who were in charge at the time on this, I remember vividly having meetings with them in 2010 saying, we have a really horrid choice. We can either do something which is clearly politically more palatable, and let's be blunt, tends to benefit the more mobile middle classes much more, and that will be politically much more digestible, or we can absolutely savage sort of further education. So would you believe it, because your point is a well-made one, that in the context of those decisions, since you invited me to go back to those gory days, was to actually try and protect and soften the blow on further education. And then, of course, what we argued at the time, perhaps not persuasively enough, was that we by significantly expanding apprenticeships we gave a, and, and, and doing so on a scale which had never occurred before, we were actually giving a very significant boost to uh, vocational education as a whole, though you're quite right, colleges did not feel it in those terms. But no, look, it's a point well made, but I'm just trying to kind of, sure, no. in, in a world of invidious choices, those were precisely the push-you-pull-me choices which we were contending with at the time. And broadening the, pulling the um, focus out a bit, I mean, you're a capital L liberal politician talking about lowercase l liberalism today. I mean, presumably in the context of Europe, and you've talked about Europe and its need to get a grip, as it were, before this can all be made good again. I mean, do you talk to your large uppercase L liberal counterparts in Europe, in individual countries in Europe, and indeed in Brussels. And tr I mean, what do they respond, how do they respond when you put cases to them of the kind you have about immigration? Do they get it? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, well, for those who know about uh, sort of the European political families, the sort of, the sort of slightly sort of, they're all rather ramshackle families, sure, sure, sort of yeah. socialists, you go to the European well, parties. Unlike, unlike in Britain, of well, course, where I they're they, they look like functional families compared <laughs> to the rather dysfunctional political groups in the European Parliament, for instance. You've got a sort of socialist group and they have a Christian Democratic sort of centre-right group, and you have a liberal group. The liberal group is actually dominated, uh, particularly these days, by the Dutch VVD. The, the Dutch are lucky. They've got two liberal parties. And the, the more dominant one is the Dutch VVD and the German FDP, who take a very, by my, by my, to my taste, you know, far too flinty and sort of uh, and uh, almost aggressive stance on, on, on immigration. You'll remember that Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister, saw off the insurgent challenge of Gert Wilders in the last Dutch elections by radically tacking to the right, and he's the leader of you know, the, Nether the Netherlands' mm. largest liberal party. So, oddly enough, whilst the Liberal Democrats here have always been, have always drawn sucker from a kind of centre-left um, and very, towards immigration, very sort of open tradition, quite a lot of the Liberal parties... Uh, in Europe actually hail from a slightly kind of, how can I phrase it, sort of harder-headed. Right. And actually, we were, we were talking about it earlier when you were earlier mocking Simon myself for talking about the sort of political <laughs> the genealogy of the Europeans. But um, there's, a, there's a relatively new 
insurgent liberal party in Spain, those of you from Spain will know it, Ciudadanos, um, which at the moment, well, it, it, it's, its advance seems to be somewhat stalled, maybe temporarily or not, we don't know, by the new uh, Spanish uh, Prime, Minister, Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez. But th this party ro rocketed up the opinion polls and actually in recent weeks and months was the largest, was the winning political party in Spain by, guess what, by basically being more hardline in its kind of uh, uncompromising approach towards the Catalan independence movement and wrapping itself in the Spanish flag than any other party. So it was kind of outflanking the kind of conservative right-wing parties by being even more uh, sort of fervent in its Spanish nationalism. So, so liberalism is, a, you know, is like all these political traditions, I, I have to say that makes me feel queasy. I kind of, I just find, you know, I find it odd to see a liberal party kind of wrap itself as vigorously in the flag, notwithstanding my case, as I made in the speech, that I think liberals shouldn't be so squeamish about patriotism. So, so in answer to your question, the, 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 the liberal family is, is, a, is a more mixed bag <laughs> than you might imagine across, the, across Europe. Okay, enough from me. I should have said at the very beginning, you, many of you may have uh, hoped or expected to see uh, Amber Kelvoy here this evening uh, opening some of the questioning uh, with Nick, but in fact... Uh, she had to do something uh, that started earlier than we all expected, including she, her, she expected it. So she wasn't able to join us, unfortunately. So uh, I had to ask the opening questions instead, which is lucky for me. Now, um, I'd like two or three thoughts and questions, try and keep them short. I mean, this is about liberalism this evening. Of course, if you really want to ask, can we rejoin the EU or something, <laughs> I'm not going to rule it out yes! in order. But uh, I want to try and, let's try and keep it on the subject a bit. Now, um, let's try and find, uh, uh, shall we, question right in the middle up there at the top. Can't see who you're exactly. And um, like a diverse range of questioners if we can get them. So I'll take this first, go on. Hiya. Um, so I assume you hold the belief that politics should stay firmly at the centre for the benefit of the country. I can't um, hear you, sorry. Can you so speak assume, up a bit? I assume you hold, you hold the belief that um, politics should stay firmly at the centre for the betterment of the country, but I was wondering that in troubled and turbulent times like these, how do you sell liberalism to people? How do you sell, how do you sell, how do you sell liberalism to people in times like these? Mm -hmm. OK, so a wide range of different types. And Yes, we'll have one down here and two down here. We'll take two at the front now. That's got front and back covered in, and two questioners here. Hi, um, I've got a question and a comment, which I'll do the other way around. Uh, comment was firstly going to be, uh, thank you for shared parental leave. I think it's the social policy that's going to make the biggest difference to me and my peer group, and we find it very liberating, Excellent. so thank you. Um, comment was going to be, you talked about um, basic political consent need, being need, need, we need to find it again for people on issues of migration. D do you feel that some kind of emergency break will really be the thing that finds it, mm. because I suspect it will need to go further, and I wonder what your thoughts on that are. Mm. Very good. And just next door, but two at that, yeah. Hi, Nick. Um, you spoke very <coughs> eloquently about the role of the state and how much more active it should be. Um, some might say you're sort of going onto the territory of social democrats. So in light of that, is there any need for Liberals if we've already got Social Democrats, and, or is it time for a realignment between the two? Well, there's an interesting... Yep. 
Um, Roads to pursue in so many ways. Uh, Good questions, all three. Right. Uh, On the first... I mean, look, I'm not sure if you intended this, but I I think the implication was that at... In times of polarization, when uh, there's a great deal of sort of fear and anger and vitriol around, uh, is, a, is, a, is um, center ground politics too, um, is it too sort of pastel when everyone else is painting in vivid colors? Uh, and that's a fair question, but, but um, it, uh, it's not the way I regard liberalism. I don't regard it as some wishy-washy, neither one thing nor the other, sort of middle-ish, muddled philosophy. I, reg- I regard liberalism as a... I, I mean, I am passionately committed to the, the, the vital belief amongst liberals that there is something uh, beautiful and extraordinary about individuals and that no one has the right to encroach upon individual privacy and rights that we, that we can only secure a better future for ourselves and for our kids by, by working tirelessly in partnership with other countries rather than in rivalry with them, that our political system is only healthy if it's constantly reformed and changed and modernised, um, that, that there are you know, extraordinary things that, that uh, liberalism has, has advocated, as I sought to explain in my speech, trying to marry the genius and dynamism of the market with the compassion and solidarity of, of, uh, of the kind of public realm. I mean, all of these things are things that I don't feel are, are kind of spitting the difference views. These are, these are really powerful um, and, and sharply, vividly colored traditions which we should defend. So, so maybe, maybe it's all about what you think here. It's, it matters. Um, and um, I would hate to think that liberal or centre-ground politics should be viewed or should be assumed to be a kind of one watery and weak tradition. I don't, that's just not the way I believe it, it is. Let's move on, I know you're going to answer, but it's just to take that point a bit further, I mean, let's take a simple example. I, I hear, I, I know exactly what you mean, but you know, you know, one party is sort of generally seen as saying, you know, we keep everything privatised or privatise a bit more, that was generally its view, and the other is now saying, uh, we must nationalise more, we need to bring more back into the ambit of the state. And, of course, a liberal, liberal position would be, well, we need to, you know, <laughs> some things we need to, but others are different. <laughs> and you can see how that is a more complicated message than I'm going to appeal to my core voters and nobody else. Yeah. Well, you, um, you know. well I, look, firstly, I think a lot of this debate about private, public, and so on... Then I'm just using it as an example. Well, no, 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 but it's, right, it's yeah, a rather important right, example, precisely right, because I Sorry. think it's lost its resonance. Okay. I think it's very old-fashioned. Very backward. Well, not old fashioned enough for the two parties, particularly Labour now, not to be well, for you know, Labour, pushing no, for, it. Well, it's actually Labour. I, don't, uh, I mean, Labour have attached, and of course, here I can't hide my, my political, you know, I, I, I think it's just sort of bathed in a kind of sort of sepia tinted nostalgia about a kind of lost socialism from the 1970s, which never existed. I don't remotely believe that this country is suddenly going to be all the, altogether better when John McDonald's wastes oodles of pub taxpayers' money and spends lots of time in court trying to reprivatise the water companies. However much I think privatisation of the water companies has is, 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 is been completely botched, of course I do. But do I think that's the magic wand? 
for our deep-seated problems. Of course it isn't. It's a nonsense. It's a little, it'll, it'll be a massive displacement exercise. So, so all I'm just saying is not, not that I disagree that that's what they feel. I just don't think it's the answer to contemporary Britain, not remotely. I, just, and they, I think it's rooted in an old politics. And if you ask about what the new divisions are, I think they're visceral ones about being open or closed, or wanting to be in Europe or not being in Europe, or reforming our political institutions or not. And guess what? Who are the, who, who are the people who've got the most vivid, brightly coloured things to say about that? Liberals. Because liberals are unambiguous about our European vocation, are unambiguous that our political system stinks and is rotten and needs to be changed from top to toe. I mean, look at, look at Labour's extraordinary ambivalence on the European issue. It's silence. It is a, it's a so-called radical party which is completely silent on political reform. It's astonishing. It's deeply conservative. So anyway, you right, ran so it's my fault. I, uh, I, well, you invited, you invited, I invited or, it. I did. Or provoked. Absolutely. Anyway, no, um, your fault. Yeah, um, my fault. I agree. <laughs> Uh, thank you for your comments about um, Chair Brentley. I'm delighted that, that uh, it meant a lot. It really, genuinely, it means a lot for me to hear that, and I, I, I'm so pleased that because it was actually quite a battle getting that on the statute book at the time. Um, on the emergency break, I don't know is the answer. I don't know whether, whether what you're quite right could be regarded or described as a sort of theoretical, to use the sort of the word of the moment, backstop, uh, <laughs> will, will be enough to quell the fears. I, I, I would just say two things. Firstly, um, of course, at some point, no policy will ever be enough to sate or satisfy or meet almost sort of lim limitless fears about immigration. What, what, do you, what do you say to a voter who feels passionately in their heart in red car as they did in large numbers in June 2016, that there are far too many foreigners and people coming from elsewhere undercutting their wages in, in that part of the Northeast, and that's why I'm going to vote for Brexit. And then you, show, and then you say to them, but there's only 2% of the local population is foreign-born. In other words, when you have that dichotomy between what people feel, which is hugely important, should never be dismissed, because the heart is a much more powerful organ than the brain when it comes to voting. We, we spend most of our time when we vote using our brain to explain something that our heart has already decided for ourselves. And when you have such a divergence between empirical fact and perception, no policy is ever going to bridge that gap, actually. So you shouldn't, in a sense, I guess part of my answer is, I, I don't... You know, I don't, I don't want to sort of set up these proposals to fail. I think they can go some way. Secondly, as long as they are part of a coordinated approach across the European Union, I think that could be very powerful. It would be, in my view, very powerful to see the European Union properly translate all its words and declarations and summit conclusions about providing a properly administered external border, particularly in the Mediterranean, into workable. And yes, this, this, has, some, this has some hard edges to it sort of tough border controls where they're needed uh, on the external southern flank of the European Union. It would, I think, it would have a dramatic effect over time if people saw the European Union as a whole come up with a sensible way of sharing the duty and the moral duty and, indeed, what some people call the burden of working out how and where large numbers of refugees and asylum seekers are, 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 are located. I think it would make a, a, a significant impact if, as I explained, beyond the terms of Cameron's um, version of an emergency break, 
that had a kind of quantitative limit to it. But, you know, politics is as much about the art of persuasion and leadership and explanation and doing it together. At the moment, we have a cacophony of different noises across our sort of patchwork quilt of a continent. And, and, just, and, the, and, and the public is right. They kind of feel no one's really getting a grip because they're not. Because everyone's pulling in, in, in different ways. So I kind of, I don't know is the answer. You're never ever going to go quite as far as some people want. But I think you can go a hell of a long way to provide greater public assurance if you do it in a coordinated and collective fashion. And then the final thing. Um, well, I think I've probably, I'll just repeat my earlier rant, uh, which is that um, uh, whilst levels of public spending, which as I try to you know, highlight, are much, I mean, the differences are often either much more minuscule than is sometimes claimed between right or left, or actually completely the reverse of what people expect. And that's why I highlighted not just to salve my own conscience, but I highlighted the fact that at the end of uh, the, the coalition, uh, public spending as a proportion of GDP was significant, 3% higher than it was under the average of the years in, in which Labour was in power. So I think there's quite a lot of cross-dressing going on in that. And meanwhile, some of the big issues that I mentioned earlier on political reform, on civil liberties, on Europe, I think there is a huge difference at the moment between the what I would call the liberal and the kind of and other sort of centre-left uh, centre-left traditions. Civil liberties, I haven't mentioned it very much, is a very good one. I, I have lots of really dear, good, close friends in the Labour Party, and we agree on a whole bunch of things. And the one thing we constantly, well, usually on political and electoral reform, we, we, we part company. Though even there, thankfully now, this always happens when they're in opposition, by the way. Uh, they're increasingly um, uh, uh, seeing the, the wisdom of uh, electoral and political reform. But no, but the, the much more interesting one is civil liberties. Quite understandably, and here I'm providing gross <coughs> caricatures, but I hope they're helpful. If you come from a socialist tradition, that proud progressive tradition in which millions of you know, working men and women were emancipated economically, socially, politically, the welfare state was created... The, the franchise was widened politically. You see the state, you see the collective as the, as the kind of battering ram for progress. So you find, quite understandably, liberal kind of um, fixation on privacy, on civil liberties. I remember, you know, I fought this endless battle with Theresa May for five years in government where I stopped her introducing what was, taught, was called the snoopers, so-called snoopers charter. The moment myself and the Liberal Democrats were swept aside, Labour and the Conservatives rushed it onto the statute book with not a whimper of complaint from the Labour Party. It is a deeply regressive, in my view, regressive and illiberal measure. Because understandably, if you're from that socialist, perhaps more than social democratic tradition, you're just not, you don't really actually care that much because the, 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 the appeal to collective security trumps the concern about individual privacy. And I think it's really important, the liberal tradition, which is a venerable British tradition, which cares about individual liberties and privacy, should be retained, because it's quite, quite distinct from, from, from other, inverted commas, progressive, progressive political traditions. Okay, let's take... Um Simon, uh, one here at the front, uh, person there, halfway up the aisle, so you can get, you've got the microphone first, then one at the front here, and then uh, one halfway up the aisle here. Okay. Shall I go? 
You're on. Okay, hi. Thank you for your, your speech. And um, now, as a, um, what liberal believe, I, I also um, have that in myself as well, in the fact that um, human beings can be improved and you should always be optimist, optimistic. Um, the thing in regards to immigration, I'm wondering, and this is what I've you know, evaluated from what's happening, especially those who've closed their borders. Could it be that um, the European countries who've closed their borders, they really um, have gone back to their way of really being? Um, I think, who is it said it? Fukuyama or someone? Um, that people will always go back to their tradition, to their culture of how they really are. And it could be that because they came from an authoritarian premise and the mindset, and not really from a libertarianism, you know, democracy, freedom for people, that's the reason why I believe they've closed their borders. And also they see all those people coming across the oceans as the other and I believe that's the reason for closing their borders and not be open to see that it could be a benefit. Okay, very I good. want to hear your thoughts. All right, you'll Thank hear you. them in the front here next, and then person in the blue shirt over here, down here, please. And then if, you, if you're allowed to come onto this side, I'll, I'll come over there next, don't worry. Hi, Nick, me. Hmm. Uh, you talked a lot about your di the difference you have with socialism or social democracy, but you've not said much about your difference with another growing tradition in Britain, which is libertarianism. And I think about a lot of the particularly senior leadership in the Tories, and I've noticed amongst our, I teach 300-plus first-year undergraduates here, and I've been doing that for 10 years, and I've noticed a growing group of them are very vocal libertarians. And they would not describe themselves as liberals, but they quite happily say they're libertarians, and they consume material produced by Legatum and mm. American Enterprise Institute and Heritage Foundation, all the rest of it, and they're very active in the Tory club here. And, and they like people like David Davis and Liam Fox and the libertarians in the Tories. And so, you know, how is your liberalism different to this growing libertarianism? Mm. Uh, well, just to, uh, can I ask you, that, I mean, are you saying that they are sort of interested in the broad mass of sort of social liberalism, but also take a kind of rather gung-ho attitude to economics and smaller state? Small states, get the state out of my life, yep. get, uh, you know, I want free internet. So lower taxes. Free film downloads and uh, <laughs> protect my civil liberties. So you get quite a lot of people uh, voting for that. Marry, marry who I want, uh, you know, kind of social liberals yeah. and radical economic liberals as well. Government out of the bedroom and the pocket. Okay, right, good. Yep, and over here. Uh, thank you, Nick. Um, just a quick one, I hope. Uh, I agree with uh, a lot of what you've said. I agree with your views on the Labour... Hi. I agree with your views on the Labour Party. Um, but what is the mechanism for making this change? I mean, you make the argument here in an audience that mostly, I assume, agrees with you. Um, is there anything structural that needs to change about how we get those liberal views out there or implement them or something that um, right. clearly is broken at the moment? Shall I, yes, shall I crack the these things? Yep. Yep. Um, very light little <clears throat> list of questions. Um, uh, so, uh, of course, um, the response of countries and individuals to your question, um, of course, as you imply, 
may or may not have to do with um, a community or a country's traditions and history and mindset and so on. But I don't think we should, um, certainly not at this sort of this end of the European continent, where we're quite far away from the pressure that was particularly and acutely felt in southeast Europe. We're in the sort of northwest bit. But southeast Europe, you know, was witness to a really unprecedented humanitarian crisis in which thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, about more than that, over a million people, fled in a very short space of time, in very unsafe conditions, from untold misery and violence on um, the Mediterranean's eastern and southern shores. And the thing was, the public could see on their television screens that their governments had absolutely no idea how to cope with it. These poor people were being housed in the most inhumane conditions in makeshift refugee centres on Greek holiday islands. Um, that large numbers were sort of moving in an unorganised, undocumented way from one country. And then, to instil even greater and entirely understandable fear in the hearts of millions of our fellow citizens, there was evidence that some of them went off, went on to commit or seek to commit terrorist atrocities in Brussels and Paris and elsewhere. And so I think it's really important in, you know, there are small L liberal institutions like this in lovely metropolitan cities like London on the other side of the continent from places that witnessed all of that. You know, not to just simply say it's, it's a mindset or, or the wrong mindset. I'm not saying you said that, but, you know, they were living through the practical effects of, as I explained earlier, a really deeply flawed sort of design error in European integration, which was that as internal borders were removed, no external border controls were put in place. And that design flaw was then exposed dramatically by this humanitarian crisis. And um, of course I wish it were otherwise. I wish the European Union had acted in a more... Uh, collective way. I wish these barbed wire fences had not come up. I, I, I loathe uh, Viktor Orban's uh, anti-immigrant Islamophobic populism now. My point simply is it's not enough to wish that people would have a different mindset. There are practical things we need to do. And politics at the end of the day is the marriage between high ideals, mindsets, and doing stuff. That's what politics is about. And we have to do stuff now, in my view, to give people the reassurance that, that governments on their behalves have, have got their act together. And I, I've come to the conclusion if you don't do that, then we can only expect one thing, which is the continued rise in populist illiberal politics. Um, uh, libertarianism. Simon, well, look, I, I didn't mention it because I find libertarianism... I mean, I, 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 my contempt for it... Um, <laughs> Uh, is quite um, um, unbounded. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of, I think, it's a very sort of immature, sink or swim. It's intellectually lazy. Because like a lot of isms, it, 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 try, it, it ignores complexity. You see, this is always the danger with all isms, is that they, they give people a kind of throwaway, a sort of throwaway response to complex issues, which, as I was just trying to explain, require practical, complex responses. And back to the 
chaps earlier question about liberalism. You know, one of the things that, which is difficult sometimes to explain in a way which competes with a young libertarian who says, I just want the state to back off and I want to keep more money than I earn and I... It's so easy, these slogans. They don't mean anything. What does that do for the social care system in Christ? What does it do for immigration? What does it do for technical educational qualifications? What does it do for, uh, you know, a, a clapped-out housing market? It doesn't provide any answers. None. It's just a sort of glib... It's a glib throwaway, I think, um, ism. And by the way, in the hands of the Conservative Party, it, 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 A, it's economically illiterate. So this, this sort of association, particularly promulgated by some of these potty outfits like the Legatum Institute, between libertarianism and free trade, it's really important, everyone, and I'm sure you'll understand it, it's essential we keep explaining to people Brexit, even under the libertarian free trade Liam Fox version of it, will lead to the greatest act of protectionism, protectionism that any developed economy has voluntarily entered into in the modern era. It'll lead to less trade, not more, more trade barriers, not the removal of trade barriers. That is what it means. It is a, it is a sort of abuse of the English language to claim that Brexit is a free trade destination. Because it's based on this absurd assertion that you can abolish geography. <laughs> That's really... I mean, did, did anyone hear David Davis on the radio this morning? I mean, he was absurd. He kind of said, oh, there are all these markets on the other side of the planet. We're growing so fast. Of course they're growing bleeding fast. They've been... You know, only now are they going through the cycle of economic development. And that's where we should trade, not, not with piffling Ireland or Belgium. But there's a reason why we trade with Little Ireland of a population of four and a half million, more than we do with India and China, these giant economies combined, because it's right next to us. <laughs> so these sort of glib libertarians, these glib libertarians, not only have this kind of rant about how they want a small state, they think they've abolished tectonic reality. And then you have people like Rhys Mogg, who's a pin-up, isn't he? He's a poster pin-up boy for the libertarians, who takes a patriarchal, patronising view towards women and their rights towards abortion. What's libertarian about that? So anyway, there you go. Rant over. Um, um, you asked me the question about how... Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I can't give you a simple answer to that. It, all sorts of things need to concatenate politics media, events, leadership, all sorts of things. But I guess my point this evening is quite a primitive one, which is that um, because of the after-effects of 2008, because of the polarizations right and left of, 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 of politics, because of the rise of various isms, populisms, libertarianism, uh, you know, liberals have just sort of, they've developed this slightly sort of hangdog, apologetic air about them. Um, and you never win an argument if you spend all your time kind of apologising for what you believe. And I guess there's only one sort of small contribution I want to make in lectures like this. We've got to start apologising for a great, venerable, yes, flawed, but really important tradition and political philosophy, which I think has answers to the future as well as a great uh, heritage in the, in the past. So I guess, I know this is a rather wishy-washy answer, but I think the first thing is you've got to believe it. You know, you really, you really do. And for, I think particularly post-2008, you know, liberals have gone around saying, oh, woe is me, it's kind of our fault. As I tried to explain, yes, there are some, some things which liberals need to accept. 
they have a responsibility for. But there's a lot that's been pinned randomly on liberalism, which I don't think it should, it should accept. So I guess intellectual self-confidence is perhaps the most important ingredient of all. By the way, just anecdotally, this is not really about liberalism. You know the moment I knew that the Brexit referendum was possibly going to be lost? Was I, was, um, I played no role, and also, nor did I seek to play, and it would have been inappropriate for me to do so at the time, any role in the kind of national referendum campaign. So I focused on the campaign in my then constituency, before I was rudely ejected by the good people of, um, <laughs> good people of Sheffield Hallam last summer. And um, so I did the kind of thing that you do, you know, you know lots of village hall debates and church hall debates and debates in pubs and clubs and you know and standing behind trestle tables giving out balloons and t-shirts and leaflets and so on and I never forget standing uh, anyone who knows Sheffield Eccleshall Road is a sort of busy sort of shopping street in, in my then constituency and uh, I was standing behind a trestle t- table with other pro-European campaigners and we were trying to interest everybody in the referendum and I noticed something very striking which was that folk who were going to vote Brexit would sort of drive past or walk past and in a perfectly friendly way, they'd sort of shake their fist and they'd say, we're for Brexit. And they'd smile and they'd be proud of it. And I remember a, a, a kindly elderly couple sort of shuffled up to the trestle table. And I remember they had um, plastic bags of, of, from Waitrose. They're obviously just coming back from Waitrose. And they said, we're for Remain. <laughs> and I just, I'd been in politics long enough to know that if you're so embarrassed by what you believe that you have to whisper it someone who you agree with, you're not going to be on the winning side. <laughs> well, the other thing is, I don't think anybody got out of bed in the morning thinking, yippee, I'm in favour of the EU, did they? That was the truth. It's the same exactly, kind of thing. Exactly. Well, I think they did think the opposite. Okay, we'll take now uh, perhaps three more. We're coming up to the last round of questions here. So um, let's take there. Second row there. And uh, there on the aisle. And On the front. Sorry, everybody. Actually, no, I, I'll take four. I'll take that. Yes, there as well. So we'll take four. But they have to be short, therefore. Uh, yeah. uh, third of the question. Uh, sorry, answers, yeah. three quarters of the question. Go for it. Thank you. Uh, my question is about the house, the house of Lords. Probably you have known that six days later there will be a debate about the House of Lords. Because some people think the House of Lords is trying to stop the brick exist. So... They want to give a debate to abolish it, and uh, yes. What do you think of that? Okay. Do you think what will happen for the debate? It's and a proud liberal. Think... To, if I can further articulate, it's a good question. Proud liberal tradition to reform the House of Lords. Do you think they should be now they're doing what they're doing? If I can put it rather more directly, right, <laughs> gentlemen? There, yeah. Uh, you spoke a lot about the UK and Europe. Um, in regards to the developing world, are liberal open market ideas... Are you? Just here. Ah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Are um, the open markets and free market ideas that liberals have uh, equally applicable there? Um, Very good. Short yeah. and sharp. Good, good. Front here and then... There you are. Yeah, cool. Uh, you've made several references to populism in your speech. For example, Donald Trump, Italy and Brexit, of course. When do you think populism becomes extremism? And up and in that row there, yep. 
you mentioned that liberalism has a lot of support from younger people that you can you imagine will continue into the future. And with millennials being squeezed in a lot of ways, with um, like insecure housing and insecure working, how do you imagine liberalism will be able to continue to count on their support? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Great. And thank you for being short and sharp. Right, Nick. Um, uh, should, should the House of Lords be... Of course it should be abolished. I, I tried... <laughs> I, I, Not I, yet, presumably. Well, no, no, I tried to abolish it. Um, it was actually a very interesting point that I was making to someone here earlier. I, I mean, not that anyone should remember this, uh, but uh, I spent, oh, months and months and months and months and months negotiating with Labour and Conservative politicians on their own manifesto commitments. You know, I, here, I say this with some feeling as someone who was hung, drawn and quartered for the failure to deliver one policy, one policy area from my own manifesto <coughs> when there was no money and I wasn't even in charge. And these two larger parties, these two larger parties had committed election after election after election to reform or abolish the House of Lords. And when push came to shove, they came up with one pathetic specious excuse after the next um, not to go ahead. Why? Because it's basically become a receptacle. It's become a sort of bucket for nepotistic political patronage. Uh, if, honestly, if we had the House of Lords in, a, in an applicant country wanting to join the European Union, we'd probably keep them out because it's such a grotesquely undemocratic uh, thing. So, of course, it should be abolished. But it shouldn't be abolished for the reason that the hypocrites and the Daily Mail and others are now saying it. So the Daily Mail and others absolutely lambasted me when I tried to introduce a methodical, gradual, thoughtful and consensual approach to House of Lords reform. <laughs> and then the moment the House of Lords says stuff that uh, this ghastly character, Paul Dacre, who's thankfully leaving finally, uh, doesn't like, it's headline stuff about abolish the bleeding House of Lords. I mean, the intellectual, gymnastic hypocrisy of it is unbelievable. And I also seem to think on a more narrow constitutional point, I think the House of Lords is entirely justified within the, within the mandate of a revising chamber to challenge the government in the way it is on Brexit. Because the way that the government is pursuing Brexit departs so radically from the Brexit that has been promised to the British people. And there's a convention, as you know, that the House of Lords are expected to sort of back down if the government of the day has got a copper-bottom mandate to do what it's doing. But we forget the Conservatives didn't win the last general election. So their manifesto did not win a victorious majority at the time of the last general election. And the Brexit that now people are uh, pursuing hasn't got any of the ingredients promised to the British people in the summer of 2016. So I think... Yes, abolish it, but don't do it for the reasons that people are saying now. Um, and defend the House of Lords, as one should defend any second chamber, to challenge the executive when the executive is sort of going off-piste as much uh, as this government is on Brexit. Um, do I think the same? No, I don't think the same th rules apply at all. Um, I think there are some basic kind of... I think there's some basic principles um, of um, open and as long as it's open and fair trade, which, which are worth pursuing multilaterally in a way which can benefit the developing world as the developed world. But, um, you know, um, the kind of liberal preoccupations I'm talking about is, uh, assume the establishment of a panoply of institutions constitutional conventions, the rule of law, 
which isn't always present in the way that I have sort of assumed in my speech in parts of the developing world. So I, 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 don't, I, don't, think, I don't think any ism should be applied in a kind of blanket way, uh, but I think there are nonetheless some universal values which are worth, worth um, sticking to. When does populism become extremism? I mean, the first point I'd make, who asked me that? Uh, the first point I'd make, it's a very good question. The first point I'd make is that, I mean, you know, we all spit out, like people like me spit out the word populism with contempt. But, you know, the, a sort of pure <coughs> definition of populism is a good thing, in a sense that populism is often the eruption of discontent with an illegitimate, abusive, uh, or dysfunctional status quo. Mahatma Gandhi was a populist. He was mobilizing popular discontent against a particular sort of status quo, a particular order of things. So I don't think popular, you know, the idea that Donald Trump and Mahatma Gandhi uh, <laughs> in any way occupy the same oh, ism. I doubt they but, but they're both populists, actually, of, of obviously very strikingly different varieties. When does populism slip into extremism? Well, I think the eye is in the beholder, really. You know, I, what I would consider to be extreme is clearly considered mainstream by, by others. But I, th I think the way in which Donald Trump is taking, single-handedly taking a wrecking ball to all the conventions and institutions and that delicate web of multilateral disciplines that we established uh, after the Second World War is a form of extreme vandalism. Um, so I think he's toppled well beyond the point of no acceptable return a long time ago. Um, and your question, I think it's a really, really important one to which I, you know, in a sense we could spend a whole evening talking about this huge generational um, distinction which has now opened up not just in attitude or mindset, but also, as you quite rightly alluded to, um, in terms of the kind of shared assets in society, clearly the uh, distribution of assets from uh, welfare to housing to secure work to free higher education. All, all of these, of course, have become increasingly polarized between the young and the old. Um, uh, my own view is that of those, though it's invidious to pick one that is more important than the other, I really do think in this country housing is particularly grotesque and unjust uh, uh, in terms of its uneven treatment of the, of the generations. And I, and I, I think it would, I, you know, if I was a millennial, if I can put it like that, uh, I think I, I, I would, e e you know, I would also... Um, respond with a hollow laugh uh, to all those saying that they've got sort of great, beautiful, fancy, progressive ideas for the future if it doesn't get down into the weeds of really providing a lasting and large-scale solution to the inequitable housing crisis. So, I mean, look, I've got no magic wand solution to you, but it is, you're clearly right that it has become, the, it has become an organising sort of distinction in the kind of political landscape of our country in a way that has become more and more and more polarised. I mean, the only other thing I would add is that I am making an assumption, which I made explicit in my speech, that the small-l liberal values that a lot of young folk under the age of 45 say they uh, believe in now, tolerance, um, openness, internationalism, and so on and so forth, are ones that 
are not suddenly going to disappear the moment they, you know, they become 46. <laughs> In other words, I think I, I am making, yes, I am making an assumption that those smaller liberal values will stick. I'm not, not completely in the same way. I discover this myself. As you grow older, you go, I become a little bit more small-c conservative on some issues and sort of more, inverted commas, left-wing on others. I mean, housing is a very good example. I've become radically more statist and sort of, inverted commas, more left-wing on housing, as I described earlier. And other, other issues, I've become more, you know, more... So, it, of course, you change. But I think that basic mindset, back to the uh, word that... the important word that was mentioned earlier, I am assuming that that smaller liberal mindset... Set, I jolly well hope it will. Now, we're just past 7.30, and I don't want to keep anybody... Just bear with me for a second. I want to ask two questions, one serious one and one very serious one. The serious one is... You'll guess what the very serious one's about. The, you've, you're coming to join us at the School of Public Policy in the way I described earlier. I mean, you've been Deputy Prime Minister in a sophisticated uh, government in you know, a country with a long-evolved system of government... What was it you found that when you were at the top of government that the kind of skills and learning of the people you were dealing with, particularly in civil service and beyond, which you think a school of public policy, and so I didn't give you warning, mm. this, a school of public policy should concentrate on, mm. should work on? What, you know, Simon, who's the director of academic... Sorry? In 30 seconds. In 30 seconds. He's 30 seconds. He says he's in charge here. Very simple. Yeah. Trade-offs. One of the biggest problems at the moment is that people talk about politics in silos. Government is about the trade-offs between those silos. And so it's like two languages are increasingly talking past each other. So, the, you know, the, 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 the fashion for single-issue politics and campaigning is one that doesn't accept trade-offs. But that's actually what the art of government is about. Uh, and certainly, of course, at a time of financial crisis, as I found, you're basically faced day in, day out, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, with an absolute exhaustive list of invidious choices, none of which an ideal world you would take. Yeah. And so the one thing I would teach people in a school of public policy is that public policy is about balancing different interests in society and different competing claims on the public purse, on government attention, and on political, uh, you know, political energy. And it's the one thing which I think is constantly missed, is people talk about politics, they write about politics, they study politics as if it's a bunch of hermetically sealed issues. It isn't. The art of politics. And of course, and I say this of course, with some feeling, because um, I saw myself the way that what I thought were difficult but not unreasonable compromises and trade-offs were quickly branded as... As, as acts of betrayal. Mm. So one person's compromise is another person's betrayal. But if we describe every trade-off in public policy and government as a betrayal, nothing will ever happen. Nothing will ever happen. So if you can educate a cohort of people to value and understand and feel comfortable in making trade-offs, I think you will do a great, great service to the administration of governments in the future. Very good. And last but not least, and I, this I'm now breaking a rule I set for the audience. How do you think Brexit's going to turn out? 
was a jolly bad idea. Uh, I, know, I know you know it's a bad no, idea. Um, I'm asking you to look forward. Do you understand Parliament and government? Yeah. Oh, I see. I mean, I'm saying. Uh, I well, uh, I mean, I don't know what's happened this evening. I, None I, of us does. So uh, you're free, I, right? I, suspect, I suspect by the sounds of the sort of noises off this morning, um, the government will have sort of scraped home yep. on uh, on some of the key debates on this so-called def- definition of a meaningful vote. Um, but um, look, I mean, the first thing to say is that, uh, as I implied earlier, the gap between what Brexit, any version of Brexit, is in practice, and what the British people were told in the summer is not just a sort of wafer-thin nuance. It is, it is just two different galaxies. So there is a, a kind of a deceit is being uh, played out on the, on, the, on the kind of goodwill of the British people on a scale that I don't think we've seen since, uh, well, I don't think we've seen in, 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 in generations. Uh, so that's point one. Point two, there is simply no way that this government will be able to cross the T's and dot the I's on any substantive meaningful deal describing what the relationship between the UK and the EU should look like by the time it has to put this to a vote of MPs in this meaningful vote in the autumn and winter of this year. So the government, at best, at best, will only be able to come forward with um, uh, a Brexit which describes a little bit of detail in the corner of the canvas... So what they're going to do about money, what they're going to do about EU citizens' rights here and UK citizens elsewhere, and maybe, maybe, maybe some arrangement on a backstop deal on Ireland. And all the rest will be what I call a sort of mañana, mañana Brexit. It'll all turn out right. Don't worry your pretty little heads. We'll we'll work it. You know, it'll be be a marvellous thing. It'll be called a Canada plus, plus, plus free trade agreement. And it'll sound great because it's got the word free in it. And lots of pluses. And Justin Trudeau is sexy. And, uh, and they like the Queen and they speak English. So it'll be fine. And what people like me will be arguing is no way in a mature democracy should you sign away a future without a more meaningful description of that future. So I have to say to you, it is not only my hope, it is my expectation that if, if there is any life left in the sort of desiccated arteries of our threadbare democratic system... A government doing what I fully predict it will do over the next few months will be very, very severely challenged by Parliament in the autumn and the winter. And, of course, what I believe, and uh, as much as I hope, is that there will be an opportunity for the country to think again. And one of the things I do in, uh, in the work of the, 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 through the think tank that um, you referred to, Open Reason, is that myself and Sam here and my team, we go round to other, speak to other governments in Europe to encourage them to think about how you could now prepare ideas for a new sort of rapprochement between the UK and the EU. Not, not I stress, turning the clock back. The, 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 the 22nd of June 2016 is gone. You're never, you're never going to go back to where you can't turn the clock back. But I think with a resettlement, particularly on this issue of freedom of movement and immigration, and because the younger generations, you know, over 70% of whom voted to stay, and because of the unsustainable proposition to which the government is um, devoting itself, I I am actually optimistic that we can find a way, by hook or by crook, uh, not to fling ourselves out to the sort of outer orbit of Europe, nor hope to be an inner core, because we're not going to be an inner core. We are a bit of a half-in, half-out country. Uh, And I think that is possible. So that's that's both my hope and my expectation that we can do that, notwithstanding whatever... Nonsense, David Davis said on the radio this morning. And on that note, I'd like to say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you.
Very good.